As we come to God's word today, we're looking at Pentecost and the power that we can have. Amen. Send your spirit, Lord. That's our life. That's our lifeblood. And uh, what we celebrate at Pentecost, interesting enough, is, very, is, is, is directly related to something that happened 115 years ago this past Wednesday. Because it was on June 1st, 1907 that the beginning of Central Assembly took place because of a moment when a lady in Springfield was filled with the Holy Spirit. And out of that came our church family. So Pentecost in this 115-year anniversary, and I like to think we're, we don't look as old as we are. <laughs> I hope so. But we are, we are still here. We should have been dead after 115 years. Most churches don't survive that long. But it's because of the Spirit of God renewing new seasons of life throughout our history that make us not now look backwards but make us look forward to what he's still doing. And uh, this pulpit goes back to over 90 years in, uh, in Central Assembly history. And I think most pastors have preached in Central, have preached from this pulpit, and we appreciate the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary lending it to us uh, for this special day. Would you stand with me as we read from Luke 24, verses 45 to 49? It's so good to be with you today, and thank you for your wonderful welcome uh, to the Noble family. We, we love the fact you're here, and God bless you guys, and His Spirit is upon your lives and will use you. This is Jesus to His disciples. After He rose again, but just before he ascended into heaven till the day he comes back. Verse 45 of Luke 24. Then he, that's Jesus, opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Of course, that had now already happened. And repentance, this is what will happen in right up to us in the 21st century. This is our mission. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. To all nations. This is our mission. Beginning here at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then verse 49, the next verse. Would you read it out loud in unison with me? With a strong voice. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Until you have been clothed with power from on high. And that's the Pentecostal promise. So will you welcome God's presence? And will you... Will you just allow God's Spirit to speak through His Word to us this morning? Amen. And agree with me there. Amen. You may be seated. Hang with me, but I can't read a verse like this without thinking of my engineering background. Because power, scientifically, is defined in a way that really is a perfect illustration of what Jesus is talking about here in the spiritual dimension. Because in physics, power has a definition. It simply meets, the precise definition of power, scientifically, is the rate of doing work. The rate of doing work. I couldn't help but think of that when I heard when I just, just those verses. Again, Jesus, 
Jesus says, wait till you're clothed with power, because there's a mission. The message, what I did when I died on the cross and rose again, that message will go to the whole world. It's going to go the whole distance. And, and I'm going to give you the push to get the work done. I'm going to give you what you need to get the work done. And to get it done at a rate such that by the time I come again, there will be a witness to every people group of what I have done. That's power. In physics is a rate of doing work. Usually power in science is rated, is measured with watt, in watts. One horsepower would be 745.7 watts. I know you wanted to know that. But, but the word Jesus uses in the Greek is dunamis. And, and we get our word dynamite, yes, from that. But sometimes that gives us a wrong impression of God's power. Like it's not something explosive. Sometimes we think we don't have God's power until something really emotional has happened. No. God's power will keep you in the game and on mission at a rate such that the gospel will reach the whole world before it comes again. This is what it's about. Now, you can, you can put this into equation form. This little phrase, the rate of doing work, you can put into an equation in physics, and it goes like this. First of all, power equals work uh, over time because it's a rate. It's, it's over a certain amount of time. So it's power, it's work over time. And then in math, mathematically, work is force, a force times a distance. Like if I was to push a, a shove on this podium and move it over a few inches, that the force I put on it times the distance it goes would give me a mathematical quantity for how much work was done on this pulpit to move it a few inches. That's mathematically what it is. So you could also say power equals force times distance over time. But whenever you have distance over time, like miles per hour or feet per second, you have what? Speed or velocity. And so very simply, and this is elegant and I think it's beautiful, this takes me way back. But you could just say mathematically P equals FV. Power equals force times velocity. And when Jesus, when Jesus, to me, when Jesus says, I'm going to give you the power of my Holy Spirit. I'm going to clothe you with power from on high. He's not talking about us coming to Jesus for the first time, repenting of our sins, and getting saved and being made new inside by the Spirit of God. I mean, that happens when you come to Christ. But now he's saying, I want to give you the shove that will help you go the distance and get my work done. That's what it is. It's the shove that'll help us go the distance. It's force times distance. It's, uh, uh, and uh, I'm going to give you the speed and the oomph and the energy you need to be able to take my gospel to the nations. Power is force times distance over time. It's force times velocity. It's God giving us everything we need to get the job done and get it done quickly. Now, from equations to pictures, hallelujah. Here's a picture of a lady who lived 115 years ago here in Springfield. Her name is Lily Corum. She turned out to be the founding pastor of Central Assembly. She's got a 115-year-old hairdo, although it looks sort of like a man bun these days, but 
This is Lily Corum. Lily and her family attended a Baptist church in town. She loved Jesus. She was serving Jesus, but she was hungry for more for God. Her sister, who was a part of the Azusa Street Pentecost Revival in Los Angeles, her sister came from Los Angeles to visit her. It was June 1st, 1907, 115 years ago last Wednesday, that early in the morning, Lily was baptized in the Holy Spirit. She was clothed with power. She already knew Jesus. She was already a first-class citizen of, of God's kingdom. But out of her hunger for God, God clothed her with power. And he put, he put some force times velocity into her life. And she, as is supposed to happen with the power of the Spirit, when he powers us to fulfill his mission, he gives us a heart to want to fulfill his mission and a boldness and a courage to do it. And she just, when she was filled with the Spirit, she just developed this boldness to want to and this heart to want to tell other people about Jesus, including her next-door neighbors who were Presbyterians, and they, they already knew the Lord. But she shared, she shared with her next-door neighbors, the Boyd family, about what happened in her life, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. It took the husband a few months because he was like some of us. I don't know what to think about this, but, you know, just leave me being saved and going to heaven, you know. But, but this power... You know, to go the distance and to fulfill Jesus. I don't know, that's me. But uh, he finally came around to it, and God very powerfully filled him with the Spirit. I mean, very tangible. He was sort of trembling, and he was speaking in tongues, and he just realized all this was true. And so the Boyd family and the Coram family each got kicked out of their own churches, unfortunately, because they'd experienced this. And Pentecostals were really persecuted back in those days. So, so they decided you know, that we're going to have church in Lily Coram's living room. And that was how Central Assembly started. In Lily's living room with her next door neighbors and then others who started being filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, it was a few years later, 1911, that Lily wrote down on a piece of paper that was found later um, in her own handwriting. She, she describes this. I'll just quote it for you. She said, and, and we as a church didn't have a location yet, she said, I saw God's great arms stretched out and his power rising as a gray mist from Campbell and Calhoun Streets. That's this intersection right here. And the gray mist is a kind of allusion back to the Old Testament and how God's power would, would be like this mist, this cloud, his presence pictured. Said, so I saw this gray mist coming from Campbell and Calhoun. And the hand of God was so big and powerful. And he spread it out over Springfield picking up folks from the east and the west, the north and the south. And they all came to this one place, and he then sprinkled them with the blood of his son, Jesus. Then he passed his hands over their heads, sealing them to the day of redemption. He was saying, God gave us his power to give us a future. And that future would look like people coming to Jesus. He said, in the future of Central Assembly, people will come from the north and the south and east and the west, and they'll find Jesus in this place. Well, this is a picture of her sister who, who lived in Los Angeles and had been filled with the Holy Spirit at the Azusa Street Revival, had been with Lily when she was filled with the Spirit in 1907. A few years later, in 1913, Rachel comes back to visit her sister, Lily. And so the work has already begun. And uh, Rachel is praying in one of the bedrooms at the front of Lily's home and, uh, and she has this famous, we call it now, the famous vision of the sparkling fountain. And the year was 1913. And Lily's son, Fred Corum, 
who later became a Harvard-trained attorney in Boston, he, he chronicles all of this stuff. And, and, uh, and he, sa he said, I was there when Rachel came out of her bedroom, and it was like her face was glowing with the presence of God. And Rachel said, God showed, her, and Fred writes, God showed her, that his Aunt Rachel, a great crystal fountain of pure water bubbling up out of the city of Springfield. And she told us that in her vision, healing waters flowed out from over the land. And they flowed to the four points of the compass and covered the entire earth. And the fountain kept bubbling in Springfield. And she said, I know, Rachel said, I know that God is going to do a mighty work that will issue forth from this city and will astound the whole world. Now let me go on record by saying we don't worship locations, we don't worship intersections, we don't worship cities. But we believe that God, just like God sent his son into real space, in real place, in real time, uh, that God acts in time and history. And there are real places among real people that God sets his glory and pours out his spirit. And, uh, and this was 1913. There was no Assemblies of God at that time. Springfield was a rather no-name, small, southwestern Missouri town. We did have... We were on a rail transit, so, uh, so that kind of connect, connected us to other parts of the country. Otherwise, there's no reason to choose Springfield. Those of us who still fly in and out of Springfield in ministry, we go, why Springfield? But the Lord will have to answer that someday. So this wasn't a major center where the largest Pentecostal denomination headquartered right next door to us, the Sons of God, would locate eight years later. And the Assemblies of God hadn't even started at this point. And, and, and to avoid self-fulfilling prophecies, this property here, when later this property was made available to Central Assembly, where we are today, nobody knew about this vision that Lily had had. This was, just, this was God saying, my spirit works in real ways through real people. And I look at Global University here in Springfield. I look at Evangel University. I look at the headquarters next door. I look at you. I look at James River Church. I look at North Point Church. I look at Evangel Temple and, and the spillover to many other wonderful churches in our city. And I want to say that fountain is still bubbling up. And out of our little city, every day, resources for ministry I look at Assembly of the God World Missions. We'll be hosting here for a month during the week for their training things. I mean, every day, the entire globe is being covered with the gospel of Jesus Christ from resources originating right here. And, and Rachel saw this. God gave her this picture. And, I want, and, and this is why we don't look to our past. We're not going backwards. I believe this fountain is still bubbling. I believe there's still life bubbling forth. That, that the nations haven't all been reached. And that God's power, there's still power that we can have. That Pentecostal power that Jesus talked. That, that, that power that will give us force times distance in, in a time at a rapid rate that we can never accomplish on our own to get the job done. So, okay, all this is 21st and 20th century stuff. Let's go back. Let's go back to the first century. The day of Pentecost, verse 1 of chapter 2 of Acts. The Bible tells us when the day of Pentecost came, this is one of the feast days, feast celebrations that pilgrims would come to in Jerusalem. And so, 
they had done what Jesus told them to stay in Jerusalem and said when the, Pente- when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, like we heard read earlier, it came and, and wind, often a picture of the Holy, of, of Spirit. A violent wind came and filled the whole house. So this sound of a wind came and this sound filled the whole house. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, another symbol of the Holy Spirit, that separated and came to rest on each one of them. Now this is everybody. And this is mind-blowing because in the Old Testament, um, God's anointing or, or his empowerment would come on a few people, kings, prophets, priests. Now on everybody. This is category shaking. This is revolutionary. The Spirit of God came upon all of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. It's not surprising they spoke in tongues with being filled with the Holy Spirit for mission and for getting on with God's work because because God was making everybody, not just a few prophets and priests and kings, but God was making everybody his mouthpiece. This had never been seen before. And so this supernatural sign of inspired speech comes to remind us that that we're all his mouthpiece. And, and, And we'll see this is in a repeated way. You don't see fire and wind anymore, but in a repeated way, this is the one thing you do see happen again and again when people are filled with the Spirit to begin the flow of God's Spirit comes out of them in a language they don't understand. And there's, there's this private dimension to tongues because of that. And then there's also a public dimension of tongues through the gifts of the Spirit. It can get a little complicated for people. So this Wednesday night in the chapel over here at 645 is one of our elective options. I'm going to be talking a little about tongues a little more and gifts of the Holy Spirit and you're welcome to submit any questions or ask any questions you have there I'll leave lots of time for Q&A and we're just going to unpack that in ways beyond what we have time for this morning but I invite you to that this Wednesday night at 645 in the chapel Acts chapter 8 and verse 14 Um, the first Christian had been killed for his faith in Acts 7 in Jerusalem, and so now people are scattering. This, the apostles, Peter, James, John, those guys, they stay in Jerusalem, and other people, they start, of course, running for their lives. Uh, but they preach wherever they go, and one of them is Philip the Evangelist. Evangelists are hardcore people. They're just passionate. We just heard from two amazing evangelists the last two Sundays, um, from Nikki Cruz last week and Christopher Allen the week before. Christopher, man... He, he, his whole life is be full of the Holy Spirit and tell people about Jesus and expect God to do the miraculous. And it, you know, most evangelists are, make the rest of us feel a little uncomfortable. But uh, Christopher was telling me over breakfast, he said, he said, you know, these signs and what? He said, I don't understand why everybody isn't healed. But he said, when I preach to these tens of thousands of people, the moments come when I give the altar call, when the power of God falls. And people all through the crowd just start getting healed. I don't have a chance to pray for them. I'd prefer not to pray for them. He said, I have more faith when I can't see their sicknesses. And, and, he, said, and he said, the amazing thing is God's power falls mainly, his healing comes mainly to the non-Christians. He said, Christians will walk out of there not healed. He said, I don't get it. Except that we do understand that in the New Testament, evangelism was often accompanied this preaching to people who don't know Christ, this getting on with the mission was often accompanied with signs and wonders. Those signs and wonders were healing because Jesus comes to repair the broken 
and casting out demons because Jesus comes to evict evil from our lives. And so when they preach, casting out demons and healing happens. Well, this Philip is one of the guys who's running from Jerusalem and he's going through Samaria where he, there's a lot of racial tensions and he preaches there and people get healed, demons get cast out, all kinds of people give their lives to Christ. And, and there's like a revival in Samaria. And it says in verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. So Philip had done the altar call. People got saved. He had baptized them, we're told, in water. This people turned to God. And then Peter and John come from, from Jerusalem. And why? When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, now in one way, they'd received the Holy Spirit already because They'd become new creations in Christ. They were saved. They encountered the living God. They encountered Jesus through his spirit. But sometimes in Acts, Luke uses receive the spirit as sort of short form for the Holy Spirit came upon them, which is not salvation language. That's power language. Like the oil of anointing came upon prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that might receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So here we see you get saved, and then there's a subsequent moment where then they got prayed for that they would be clothed with power so that they would have the strength of the Lord to get on with the work of the Lord. It's all about power. And uh, it doesn't say they spoke in tongues in this instance, although, you know, Luke, he, often, he, he sometimes says in Acts when people came to Christ, he, he happens to mention, and they were baptized, like he did here in Samaria. And other times said people come to Christ, and he doesn't happen to mention they were baptized. That doesn't mean they weren't baptized, but... Some of this was just assumed that everyone understood this. And so he doesn't mention speaking in tongues. This is the one place it's not mentioned. Although Simon the sorcerer goes up to Peter and John afterwards and said, boy, I'd pay you money that what happened to those people would happen when I do that to them. And so clearly something very visible and audible happened. They probably spoke in tongues. They, they spoke in tongues here um, would be the inference. And then we come to Acts 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers, now Peter is in, uh, in a Gentile house. This was really stretching it. And the circum or Jewish believers who had come with Peter, they were astonished that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Because Peter was preaching about needing to go to Jesus to forgive sins. And all of a sudden the power of God came upon them, uh, all these Gentiles, and they came... Their hearts had obviously opened in faith and they came and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I do know people who, when they first received Jesus within moments, uh, they're also filled with the Holy Spirit. Although for many of us, it's later, but it doesn't matter. And they didn't have hands laid on them. You don't need that. I had a lady in a ch church when I was pastoring in Southern California. We were praying for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And like Peter and John, laying hands on them. And as one lady, she came, somebody prayed for her, and nothing happened, and she just left with a bad attitude, not because nothing happened, because she had this picture like she wanted me to pray for her. I was the pastor. And so she went home with a bad attitude. 
And then the Lord convicted her. And so the next day at work, instead of joining her, uh, everybody else for lunch, uh, she went into the parking lot, sat in her car. She repented. She said, God, I'm so sorry. You know what? I just need you. I don't care who prays for me or doesn't pray for me. I just need you. So suddenly my, my car, I mean, she told me this personally the next week. Suddenly my car filled with the presence of God, and I was speaking in tongues, and God just filled with the Holy Spirit. So, and I have another friend who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, it was a little awkward. So I was on a bus going to work in the morning. I just was thinking about the Lord. And this, is, this is how, you know, he's coming close to Jesus. And so all of a sudden, it's like the Spirit of God came over me, and I just started like speaking in tongues and this has never happened to me before I mean you never know when God's going to get you if you're hungry for God you know and sometimes it's not an emotional experience sometimes it's not emotional at all but there is something that happens where God begins to clothe you with power to give you the strength to go the distance in his work so the Gentiles the power of God came on them and they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then we'll go one more to Acts 19. These are more Gentiles. Uh, uh, no, these would be back to Jewish men. It looks like they're John the Baptist disciples. Paul comes to Ephesus. Paul's, Paul was talking to them. He said, you know, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That's Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They gave their lives to Christ and they were baptized in water. And then... Paul placed his hands on them. Again, after they were saved, Paul placed his hands on them, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. They spoke in tongues again because God was making them his mouthpiece. They spoke in tongues and prophesied, and they were about 12 men in all. Spirit of God, come on us. You don't psych this up. It's not spooky. It may be emotional. It may not be. You may feel something. You may not. But there is something tangibly of the power of the Holy Spirit that can come on us. I want to end with this in terms of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I like to think of it as calling on the Lord. C-A-L-L. To call on the Lord. And it starts by, first of all, confessing all known sin. If you're still deliberately living in sin, um, God's not going to give you his spirit. Confess all known sin. And then A, that's the C. A, ask by faith for God's gift. Don't, you don't psych this up. You just need to draw close to Jesus and thank him that this is something that you don't make happen. This is something he gives you as a free gift. And if you're forgiven, if you're washed clean by the blood of Jesus, you qualify for the gift of God's empowering spirit. And so just receive it. Ask for it like a gift. And long to be used for God. You know, don't long to speak in tongues. Some people get this backwards. They put this emphasis on the wrong syllable. We don't long to speak in tongues, although that comes with it. We long to be used by God. We long to be a part of his mission. That's why I need his power. And then lift praise for the answer and just begin by faith to say, thank you, Lord, for the gift of your spirit. Thank you for hearing my prayer as I ask by faith. Thank you that you're going to use me, Lord. And thank you for the gift of the spirit. And sometimes 
as you just thank him, that, that language of the Holy Spirit, words you don't understand just begin to flow out of you. And, you know, it's not uncontrollable things that take hold of you. You, you just yield to it and, and humility and just let God's Spirit flow through your life and let him do this. And I'd like to invite you to stand with me.